Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. Colin Calloway. Dr. Calloway is the John Kimball Jr. 1943 Professor of History and Professor of Native American Studies at Dartmouth, having received his PhD from the University of Leeds in 1978. Specifically, he is interested in studying Native American-white relations in early America. He's here to discuss his book, The Victory with No Name, The Native American Defeat from the First American Army. You'll learn about this often unheard of battle, how Washington related to Native Americans, and how the study of Native American history has changed over time. And now, Drs. Calloway and Bradburn. Okay, well, I'm delighted to have with me today uh, Colin Calloway, who is the John Kimball Jr. 1943 Professor of History and Professor of Native American Studies at Dartmouth. Uh, I, of course, am Doug Bradburn. I'm the founding director of the Washington Library here at Mount Vernon. And uh, he's here tonight to give a book talk about his new book, The Victory With No Name, The Native American Defeat in the First American Army. But those of you who are familiar with the field of early American history, will know him as one of the leading historians of Native American history, really, of the last generation. He's written a number of great works, including Scratch of a Pen and, uh, of course, The Victory with No Name. The American Revolution in Indian Country is one I recall mm -hmm. as being very important in the mid-90s when it came out. Colin, is that right? Yeah. So uh, I see here, I see... PhD, University of Leeds, England, 1978, with a specialty on Native American history. Where did that come from? Uh, uh, were there a number of Englishmen running around in the late 70s looking to do Native American history? Well, thank you, Doug. Pleasure to be here. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, <laughs> as far as I know, there was only one Englishman running around, and that, that was me. Hmm. Um, and so it was... Uh, it was it was difficult to find people to talk to about no. Native American history. Uh, I found, I worked with a, a scholar who was actually an Edmund Burke scholar, but he did mm. American history on the side, which was mm. uh, about mm. what you could hope for. Um, I don't know where the interest came from. Mm. Uh, I get asked that a lot. Uh, when my, my mother was, I used, was alive, I used to say to people, I don't know, but if you find out, could you call my mom? <laughs> Uh, it was well, it makes there. you more interesting to have an intriguing question yeah. like that hanging right, out there. Right. Right. There was an easy answer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but that's that. Things have changed uh, mm. hugely since then. Mm. Um, I mean, now you can there are students in England doing PhDs in Native American history at mm. you know Dundee, Manchester. You know, there there are faculty uh, mm. teaching courses on Native American history. Things that would hardly you know, deemed possible. Well, the field has been transformed since 1980. I mean, uh, uh, since you came out, uh, you came out. There was a number of 
anthropologically minded historians in the 70s and mm -hmm. into the 80s, I think, who were trying to look again at the, the story of Native Americans. How do you, how do you tell that story of transformation? Some of the, the names that come to mind, of course, uh, for me are like Jim Axtell mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and Richard White and others. Yeah. But who, where, how do you tell the story of the, yeah. the changing, the new Native American history that, that emerged in the 80s? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think in the 60s and 70s, people who were doing hi Indian history, by and large, were doing it under the guise of <clears throat> you know, American frontier or, or U.S. Indian policy. Mm -hmm. And then with people like Francis Jennings and Jim Axtell and, and Richard White, uh, we began to take a much more ethno-historical approach. And ethno-history is really a, a kind of a a collaboration or a shotgun marriage between mm. history and anthropology mm. um, and I, I think it actually sounds more exotic than it is <laughs> because I, to me ethno-history is really just um, trying to tell in this case Native American history in terms of their own culture and their own understanding of the world and of their experiences um, and of course we should be doing that and have been doing that, but to me that's just good history. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think we would balk at, at applying those yeah. same criteria to, to other groups. Yeah. Um, but of course that required doing much more um, Native American history, not, I mean, I guess the phrase was from the bottom up, but or from the inside out and getting a much better mm -hmm. grounding in the sort of lived experiences of Native American people. Yeah, the social right? world, the material yeah, world, yeah. the cultural world. And of course it, it required many of us to sort of retrain ourselves or, or at least rethink about how we did history mm. uh, because as historians we're, we're comfortable with the documents trained in the archives. Mm. Um, and of course those we were told were not the best places to look for Native American sources because Native Americans did not produce sources. At least that was the wisdom of the time. I always felt, I very quickly found that that was mm. actually a myth put about by lazy historians <laughs> or historians yeah. who were not interested in Indians yeah. because the colonial archives and lots of other archives are full of mm. sources by Indians, about Indians, speeches recorded yeah. of in, in Indians, those kinds of things. But of course, they're all filtered through non-Indian pens and minds and eyes. Uh, and so very often you were looking at these documents with a, perhaps a much more skeptical eye than, than we might some other document. Mm. Well, but all sources have to be met by a professional historian's eye with skepticism at some yeah, level. And absolutely. so there's a big uh, gap between, well, it's worthless because it's a European's recording of something and you know, it's verbatim truth, mm -hmm. you know, there's yeah. some, there's a spectrum there along which the, the historian who's asking the right questions, it seems to me, can, can get at the tale. Mm -hmm. And you've done that well throughout your career, I would say. Well, I've done it, yeah. <laughs> uh, I've tried to do it. Not and everyone I think, has I, I think that's, that, that is right. I mean, you have to say who, who, who produced this source, why, yeah. who are they trying to convince, uh, and how accurate are they and how can we cross-check mm. this against other sources? Yeah. yeah, it's a historian's task, sure. Well, and in some ways, too, the, uh, the benefit of the 18th century is the lack of communication across distances. So you can find things in, in a French archive or in a Spanish yeah. archive 
recording the same event, and they would have no way of knowing what the you know what a source in the English archives says about it. So yeah. you you can triangulate in ways that I think you've shown throughout your work. Yeah, and, that's right. And many others have yeah. as well. So uh, I think that as we walk through the kind of historiographical changes, first this growing effort to once again look at the story from Native American perspective, who's a bit with a better sensitivity towards. Native American uh, voices and cultures and inclinations. Uh, then again, I think a trend towards incorporating the Native American story into the mainstream narrative of colonial American history yeah. so that it isn't just, and also there's Native American stuff, but rather the story is one in which you have to, you have to have Native Americans ever present because they're the dominant power in North America right. for much of that period. Yeah, and that's something I absolutely believe in. Uh, I mean, obviously, I uh, it would be foolish and presumptuous of me to say that I, I present Native American history from a Native American perspective, um, but that doesn't mean that we can't try and, and weave those perspectives and, and understandings into the story that, that we tell. But for me, I, I often say that what I do or think of, how I think of what I'm doing is American history with Indians in it mm. and I think uh, years and years ago when I was uh, working at the Newbury Library when Fred Hoxie was the director mm. uh, we were organizing conferences on American Indians in American history and these were conferences that were designed or attempting to uh, incorporate Native Americans into U.S. history, into the U.S. history right. survey text. Yeah. The main narrative. Yeah, yeah, man, what a challenge that is. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Because that mainstream narrative is, 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 is so powerful and it's so difficult, I think, to do more than tinker with it mm. in a way that will still satisfy publishers, school boards, etc., etc. But I really believe and I've come more and more to believe it's not as if I set out with this master plan, but as I've, I've, I've worked over the years uh, on different topics and delved deeper, that Indian history not only belongs in U.S. history, but that U.S. history without Indians in it is, is a myth. Yeah. Right? yeah, I mean, it really is triumphal. Right? Yeah, right. it's triumphal, and lots yeah. of things simply don't make sense. Yeah. Lots of um, things don't happen if you don't have Indians as part of that story. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's the challenge because to weave Indians effectively into the US history requires more than a more than a, a sidebar in, a, in mm -hmm. a chapter. You really have to yeah. rework the narrative. Yeah. Now here at Mount Vernon, of course, the, the main story that we tell is the story of George Washington, the mm -hmm. father of the United States the great founder. Um, you think about the great biographies of Washington, like the multi-volume ones, the Douglas Southall Freeman, kind of exhaustive right. ones. Native Americans will be in that book because yeah, it's it's big enough. In it. But in many biographies, they, they get short tripped, it seems to me, despite the fact that they're so yeah. central to Washington's own story. Yeah. Yeah, fun. It's strange you should ask because yeah. I'm this my next book, the book that I'm working on, uh, yeah. is called The Indian World of George Washington yeah. and for obvious reasons because who better than Washington to employ as a vehicle 
to pull Indians mm. into mainstream American history. Yeah. And so my intent with this, my, my goal is to show how even the life of George Washington could not have been lived and turned out the way it did without the presence of Indians and of course that Indians were, mm. were fundamental in the nation that he built. And reading a lot of those biographies, Indians are either absent or fairly easily dismissed. Mm. They're certainly not very often treated with um, sensitivity mm. a, as mm. actors in, in, in the right. plot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that, it, and that's surprising because thanks to the great job that the people who are doing the Washington Papers mm. uh, have performed, you can now get into Washington Papers and Washington was thinking and talking and writing about Indians Mm -hmm. I don't know if all of the time, but an awful lot of yeah, the time. Quite a bit of the time. Yeah, they Absolutely. were on his mind. Well, let's, let's return to that. You're, you're thinking on Washington and Native Americans as, as we walk through uh, the victory with no name. Mm -hmm. uh, so what is the victory with no name? Victory with, with no name is, is the best title I could come up with. Yeah. It's the second title for the book. My, my first, my working title had been <laughs> Uh, the day that American Indians destroyed the United States Army, which was not quite catchy. Too long. Yeah, not quite yeah. catchy enough. Yeah. But what it refers to is a battle that took place in Northwest Ohio, uh, November 4th, 1791, mm. where a coalition of, of Indian tribes, nations, who were defending the Ohio Territory against American expansion, uh, attacked, defeated, and essentially destroyed uh, the American army led by General Arthur mm. Sinclair. Uh, and it, as I said in the book, this was not a massive battle by European standards, mm. but you know, a thousand Indians attacking 1400 uh, yeah. American soldiers by the time the battle took place. And the, uh, the army was essentially destroyed. The significant thing that always struck me was that it was the only army the United States had at the time. Yeah. And Yet, this is a battle, and, and I've been coming across it and reading about it for, you know, mm. I think all of my life, it seems like. Um, but there wasn't really a, a, a book about it. Mm. Uh, some smaller treatments, often by military historians mm. and local historians that are very useful, um, but not a, a, an attempt at a comprehensive dis, uh, study yeah. of, of the battle. And what well, pause there. Yeah. I mean, you can compare that with, uh, as you do in the book, with Custer's Last yeah, Stand, that was thing. Yeah. which is famous. There's movies about it. There's many, sure, many books about sure. it. But yet the Americans only lose 250 men. Right. I mean, if we're measuring by the calculus of men yeah. lost in battle, this is much worse than that. It is much and, worse. And then, in, as you say, in, in compared to the, the size of the army at the time, this is yeah. catastrophic. Uh, it's, it's catastrophic. Yeah. And again... Obviously, this is one of the reasons why I came to it, coming out mm. of Native American history and thinking, mm. Custer, Sinclair. Yeah. Not only in term, in raw numbers is this more catastrophic, but if you look at the relative strength and position of the United States in 1791 mm. and 1876. Yeah. In 1876, the Battle of Little Bighorn is, is obviously a disaster for people involved. It's... Uh, it upsets Philadelphians reading about it in their newspaper on the 4th of July mm. um, but it really just kickstarts a uh, an intensified campaign against the, the Lakota, the Sioux and the Cheyenne 
and it, it barely interrupts that American yeah. march yeah. the Pacific and the emergence yeah. of world power. In 1791, yeah. it's an infant republic and it's pretty precarious. Mm. Mm. Uh, the Brits are in Canada, are up to no good as usual. Mm. The Spaniards are uh, waiting for the, this experiment in republicanism to, to fail. Mm. Um, communities, settlers in the West and even in, in Vermont are, are contemplating uh, maybe going yeah. off into somebody else's yeah. orbit. So there's a there's a real question mark over yeah. whether this experiment in Republican government can yeah. can succeed. And this is a huge, huge blow. Yeah, it's a major challenge. Yeah. Well, and, and it's striking. Maybe we'll talk about the memory of the battle a little <coughs> bit as as we get on. But it's it's also striking because certainly more contemporary history buff Americans would have heard of something like Braddock's defeat in the French and Indian yeah. War as well, which is seen as a huge disaster for the British, mm -hmm. but it's similar in scale to this sort of, this loss. And 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 again, probably more devastating for, for the reasons you mentioned in terms yeah. of the, the geopolitical positioning of the United States at the time. Yeah, and Braddock's defeat is not only um, similar in terms of, of losses, it, it's almost eerily similar mm. in how this thing tactical plays, yeah, and in how this plays out uh, mm. especially given that we, we read all the time about how <coughs> Braddock's defeat showed Americans that the British could de be defeated and also how to defeat them mm. Mm. Um, yeah. but I guess they were not quick studies <laughs> necessarily not in all cases yeah. empires <coughs> have to relearn lessons That's over right. and over yeah. again yeah. I'm afraid as That's we right. as we see all yeah. too often but, uh, yeah, but uh, getting yeah. back to the title, yeah. this is a battle, and I suppose you could say the same to Braddock's defeat, although less so, it's often called the, the Battle on the Monongahela. Mm. This was a yeah. battle that doesn't really even have a name. Yeah. It's attributed to an individual, and it's, it's a court, it's, I mean, how we name things, of course, yeah. carries a lot of weight, and calling this Sinclair's defeat. Well, first of all, it tells you nothing about who he was defeated by. That's right. right? Yeah. Whose and victory is it? Yeah, after right. All? And that's, yeah. I guess, why I wanted to use the term <laughs> victory in, yeah. the, in, the, in, the, in the title. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you name this victory by the end of our conversation. All right. All right? So you can think about that. But in the meantime, let's kind of walk through uh, the book. So it's, yeah, so it's, it's a fantastic monograph in the sense you found that, that, that battle and you can, you can look at it. You... In talking about the two parties at war here, mm -hmm. you talk about warring confederacies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you mentioned a little bit already, kind of the weakness of the American Republic, this new federal kind of uh, experiment. Uh, what about the Native American Confederacy? What is it? Who 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 are the people that are yeah. part of it? How does it relate to other confederacies that have existed? Right. Yeah, coming out. Yeah coming at all of this stuff from a perspective of Native American history, or, yeah. you know, pick up a U.S. textbook and I'd see the Age of Confederation. Mm -hmm. Mm. And yeah. I'd be thinking, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I was thinking about yeah. Indian confederations because mm. one of the mm. things that you see in the 18th century is an increasing uh, number of, 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 of these kind of coalitions. And this was nothing new in Indian country. Indian people mm. had, had formed and maintained and sustained alliances, you know, forever. As we see, but obviously, of course, in the in the face of this growing um, American threat, there's there's a greater pressure to uh, to unite, particularly in Ohio, because Ohio, by the second half of the 18th century, um, had become something of a, a regrouping ground 
for Native American people, some of whom were indigenous to the place and had gone other places like the Shawnees and had their own diaspora and then uh, in many ways had reassembled, but also other Indian people had been shunted from the east and some Indian people had been drawn in from, from further west or north, mm. attracted by the presence of Pennsylvania traders. Mm. Um, but all of those people who are creating or recreating homes and communities in the Ohio country, and often these communities are fairly multi-ethnic mm. in character, um, realize they're under this, this, this growing pressure mm. and that they're going to need to fight to hold back American expansion of the Ohio River. So the pressure is is settlers. It's land settlers. Is it speculators? Is it the federal government? Is it all these combined? I mean, how? Uh, I think it's all those. What are the sparks? I yeah. guess that. Or, I think or it's is this just a low burn that's been going yeah. on since the 1750s in the yeah. Ohio Valley? I mean, is this new or old, or what do we get? Yeah. Well, I think the answer to all those questions is yes, <laughs> and not necessarily in that area. You're sure it's a low burn because, yeah. of course, there's the constant uh, pressure on Indian Indian land. There's and, violence. There's a regular yeah. violence. There's trade, of course, and relations and nonviolence as right. well. But there's yeah. between both sides. There's there's stealing and fighting and grappling. And the, and the Brits have been trying to regulate the frontier since yeah. before the end of the Seven Years' War. And of course, the Proclamation Line right. had been an attempt to do that. Yeah. And then the Treaty of Fort Stanwix, which is stuck in 1768, mm. which establishes that Ohio River boundary, was an right. attempt to move that boundary. And the idea was, or the hope was, that th this slow burn of frontier expansion could be managed, you know, relatively mm. bloodlessly. Um, but I think what happens after 1783, when mm. the United mm. States wins its independence, is that it's broke at the end of a war and really the only resource that it has are the lands that Britain mm. has ceded to yeah. it in the yeah. Treaty of Paris. Converting that to, if you like, to real estate and, mm -hmm. and to derive income from it is a task that the federal government faces. It looks to the area north of the Ohio as a place where hopefully it can implement that process with more order and yeah. uh, dignity. Well, in, in some ways, I mean, it, it's the radical, it's a radicalism of the revolution is this, mm -hmm. we're going to modernize and systematize this landscape right. and remove the traditional inhabitants from their, you know, ancient ways and, yeah. and sell it off and commodify it and turn it into a capitalist marketplace. And they, yeah. And the people who are going to help them to do that are the land speculators. Yeah. Who of course, Washington, was was very familiar with with, mm -hmm. with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, he'd been doing it his whole right. life. <laughs> he didn't like the way a lot of people did it in the 1780s, right. but he'd been he, he, you know, he, he'd cut his teeth. He knew there. the business, right? Um, <laughs> I think he was. I think he'd given up on the dismal swamp by that point. <laughs> right. But this this um, yeah. a, a company of land speculators, they call themselves the Ohio Company, mm. uh, are formed in 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 Boston in 1786, and basically what they plan to do is is to obtain uh, to raise money to get investments um, buy land huge grant of land from Congress and then they'll turn it around and sell it when that land becomes more valuable when essentially settlers arrive mm -hmm. of course the um, the problem there is that the settlers 
a something of a problem. You don't want settlers arriving until you've got the land. Yeah. And so you don't want you want the right kinds of settlers. You want, you maybe right some nice New Englanders. Yeah, you want and stuff. families. You some want of these people, people who are out there. Settle down yeah. and create towns. You don't want yeah. uh, you know Scotch Irish squatters who yeah. are just going to yeah. go in there anyway, cause trouble with the Indians, and then. Yeah turn around to somebody like George Washington as they, as they did and say, well, this land's our, our yeah. land as much as your land. Mm. Um, so you get a situation where a lot of the people, a lot of the land speculators are actually working kind of hand in glove with people in government, people in the Congress. Sometimes they are the same people mm. uh, to orchestrate uh, this, this process. Um, and one of the things that... Um, I, I, as I was researching this this campaign and how Sinclair's campaign was was delayed by weather, by mm. poor supplies, by all kinds of logistical things, he's under pressure. The pressure coming from the top, from Washington and, and Henry Knox, Secretary mm. of War, is you know, push on, push on. You've got to get this mm. this done. And I <clears throat> and I I I I'd just been reading Richard White's book, mm. Railroaded on the mm -hmm. transcontinental railroad mm. um, in the in the 19th century where Richard argues that yeah the nation needed railroads but it needed the transcontinental railroads but it maybe didn't need it right then mm. there mm -hmm. didn't need to be that rush and his argument was that it's the railroad magnets who are, are really pushing mm. The timetable of Western expansion. Well, we don't necessarily need cars that drive themselves right, either, right, but right. there seems to be a lot of push right. towards that right yeah. now too. Um, it's interesting, though. But way. in the 18th century, yeah. I think it's the land companies. Yeah. Well, that, and that in well, and you see, you see in Washington's case, of course, is a you know he, he forms the Potomac Navigation Company as a way to try to right. get the West under right. control. I mean, yeah. the, the, yeah. it's a geostrategic issue. It's a money issue. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of reasons why they want to get there yeah. sooner yeah. rather than later. Okay, so why why wasn't the Washington administration able to have some kind of treaty as they did with the Creek uh, in 1790 mm -hmm. in May when all those Alexander McGilvery yeah, and these yeah. others are in New York and the spectacular mm -hmm. you know parties they threw and they hammered out this mm -hmm. treaty with its secret you know uh, agreements yeah. between McGilvery and the government and all that why why wasn't there an ability in in, in Ohio to to have some kind of Pacific solution? Rather than a Marshall one, I guess. Yeah, and in the, I, in the short term at least. And I, I, I know I, the creek ultimately gets screwed, but right. in the short term, there's you know there's not a war in the 1790s, right? But I, I actually think yeah. there there is an attempt by that, and I actually, mm. much as I see Washington as a as a guy with his eyes covetously laid on the West on Indian land, mm. both for himself and the nation, I do think that he and Knox want to. Uh, to carry out this process with justice, mm. as they see it for mm. Indian people. Oh, this mm. is a new nation on the world stage, they want to mm. look right. Yeah. And of course, the United States inhabit, inherits from Britain and the other colonial powers the, the tradition of making treaties. Mm. But the United States is still learning the game. If it, mm. fairly quickly, it's going to dispense with some of the rules of the game. But I also think that the treaties by themselves are, are a precarious mechanism for doing this. And even the mm. McGillivray Treaty in New York, when McGillivray goes home, there's lots of creeks saying, well, who's he to negotiate a treaty for us? Mm. Right? 
And so the perennial problem. Yeah. yeah, the treaties that the United States makes with Indian people immediately after the revolution mm. uh, are flawed from the get-go because the United States first of all takes the position that the Indians have to have, have already lost their land right. by right, right of conquest. Yeah. If mm. they fought the wrong side, they lost, they can have the land, the United States will give back to them some small portion of their land. Mm. And the Indians very quickly um, squash that idea and say, mm. we're only going to deal with you if you deal with the United Tribes. Mm. And the, the United States tries to do that at the, at the Treaty of Fort Harmer in 1789, but it's the same old problem. Mm. The, the, the guys who turn up to deal are not the guys yeah. who really other people feel should be there dealing for right. them. Yeah. Um, and so getting a, a treaty with um, that's supposed to confirm those earlier treaties from a handful of compliant mm. chiefs actually only further alienates mm. uh, those members of the coalition who are saying, you know, that we, we, we see how the United States operates, we see the divide and rule tactics at work here. That's not what we're not going to do. For the United States, of course, the treaty is a treaty, and now they've got, um, if you like, the, the legal justification to say, well, you, you, know, you made those earlier treaties, you've confirmed it by this treaty, yeah. now why are you resisting? So, so the idea of a kind of pan-Confederacy of Native Americans was always the bugbear of a lot of British and Virginians yeah. and others. Yeah. Why were the Ohio Indians successful in this moment in bringing... A, a coalition together that could who could fight together and with such success yeah. in this moment. Well, and I think that not this is not the first instance of success, mm. most because Pontiacs. Yeah, and I always see that mentally think of this as kind of like Pontiacs yeah. in a way because it's and after been, you have a new power who now yeah. decides they can do things by their own rules. And there'd and, been a huge yeah. uh, coalition of Indian resistance during the revolution, of course. And yeah. I think we well, sometimes yeah, lose sight of that because we usually sort of <coughs> package those mm -hmm. Indian resistors as allies of the British, therefore the British probably organized it as if right. Indians couldn't do that themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I think there was a, a, a very big coalition during the revolution and that this coalition here both builds on that and develops from it. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of the next round of the struggle, or maybe it's not, maybe it's just a continuation of the struggle for yeah. Indian people. I mean, we used to thinking of the revolutionists ending in 1783, but for these Indian people, um, well, up and down the, the Eastern Woodlands, it mm. really doesn't end. The issues that they are fighting for are still the issues they're fighting for up until 1795. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about this, this particular story then. Yeah, so yeah. St. Clair is what major general? What's yeah? What is Sinclair is general. He's yeah. also the governor of Northwest, the Northwest Territory, which mm. was created under the Northwest Ordinance, mm -hmm. 1787. Uh, he is the person who negotiates the Treaty of Fort Harmer. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, claims one of the claims that he makes. Getting back to your earlier point, is that by dealing with the Iroquois and the other tribes separately, he thinks he's effectively disunited them. Mm. Uh, I think all that does in effect is to reaffirm the mm. unity of the people the who are not there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but with that, with the Indians ostensibly or at least being put in the position now of not abiding by this treaty and being unwilling to, to see reason. Okay. And I think this is part of the 
problem, and, and, and it's maybe in part the tragedy as, as, as I see in Washington, not for let's say Washington. Yeah. I think Washington wants to make good and honorable treaties with Indian people so that things can go ahead yeah. with minimal bloodshed. The problem is that Washington, like the rest of the nation, um, needs Indian land. So these treaties have predicated on the notion that the Indians will give up their land mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that they will eventually probably learn to live like white Americans. Yeah, or move west. Right. right. Yeah. The problem then is what if the Indians say no? <laughs> right. <laughs> then the language becomes very different. Yeah. Then we see a lot of the you know, the use of the word extraprep, which, yeah. you know, root them out. I mean, I suppose yeah. what we would call genocide, right? Mm -hmm. That's a language at least. Um and so now the Indians having refused to see reason it's time to send in the troops mm -hmm. and uh, an American expedition is sent in under General Josiah Harmer in, in 1790 which does what most of these expeditions do they burn villages and mm -hmm. burn crops mm -hmm. and, and leave without seeing too many Indians but the Indians start following them home and by the time Harmer's troops uh, make it back they've lost 200 suffered 200 casualties mm. so there needs to be another expedition and you see again that many of the land speculators are saying just that you yeah. know we can't leave it there we've got to get back in mm. Mm -hmm. uh, and so St. Clair's army St. Clair's instructions are to assemble an army at Fort Washington Cincinnati uh, Cincinnati and march it north establishing sort of posts along the way and destroy a cluster of Native American villages in northwestern Ohio, the place called Kekuyonga. They're often just called, referred to as the Miami towns, but there was up there Shawnees, Wyandots, Delaware. Is that people. the uh, the great marching place or the great transfer place? Or? The portage. The area. portage. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. right. Yeah, important right. place. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the idea is that he will defeat the Indians, destroy their villages, and establish an American fort there for that reason. Yeah. Right? this is a very strategic position. Mm -hmm. um, and that this will put an end to Indian resistance, which yeah. Knox so consistently characterizes as a couple of hundred banditti. Like that. these right. are renegades. Yeah, yeah. These are yeah. not the you know the, the 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 real people. So this is still in the model of put a big fort at important at important waterways and yeah. portages yeah. And, and, and dominate that, the that scene. Yeah, uh, so like uh, the the old strategy of the Ohio Company with fort. Mm -hmm. You know, what eventually Fort Pitt, Fort Duquesne, right. and right. Yeah. all right. So they want to go put a fort and there. It's it's kind of um, it's like a disaster from the get go. Yeah. I mean, you've got people who are supposed to be supplying the army, are shall we say not doing their job? <laughs> you know, there's there's pack saddles come from you know Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, and and they don't fit. There are shoes that fall apart. There are tents that don't withhold the rain there's gunpowder mm. that's wet uh, I mean it, it's it's contract muskets so, that don't work yeah, yeah all this kind so of bad contracting bad supply contracting they're late getting going the troops many of the troops are supposed to assemble at, at, at sort of uh, Pittsburgh and then mm. float down the Ohio River the river's low they're held up uh, so these campaigns and the French and the British have done this right if when you're fighting eastern woodland Indians um, you fight their, their villages and their crops. Right. Right? Yeah. It's like 
in the West you fight buffalo and you don't actually go yeah. looking to fight Indians necessarily. Yeah, these and are not economies built to sustain right. multiple seasons of war. So yeah. ideally you, you launch your campaigns late, late summer, early fall, destroy the crops and there's not time to grow another crop before winter hits. The so Native warfare against Native Americans <laughs> has always been total warfare. Yeah, it's economic right? it's warfare. Been yeah. destroy the society. Yeah, that was what, what worked. Yeah. Uh, but already, but I mean, by the time Sinclair gets going, it's it's October, mm. and you know the guy, and there's lots of several officers, journals, you know, and every day they start with the weather, and it's snowing, and it's mm. raining, and the morale is bad, and they're of course forging a, a path through the forest as they go, and they've got wagons, and they've got oxen, and they've got camp mm. followers, some of them have got their kids with them, yeah. and they're making a few miles a day. How many camp followers in an army of, what, 1,500? Well, it's hard to tell, because that, this comes up later with the number of, of casualties, casualties yeah. where some people say, like, 200, and others say 15, of course, it's very difficult to... Yeah. Uh, there's certainly camp followers being drummed out of the camp for bringing in liquor and all kinds of mm -hmm. things. This is um, this hardly looks like a professional operation, and of course, a lot of the guys. This is uh, a nation that's still very uh, suspicious of the idea of a standing army. So mm. you fill the ranks with militia and provincials yeah. and levies on short terms. You know, a lot of those guys don't want to be there, mm. um, and they they lack training, they lack discipline. Um, so it's more like in some ways like a mob on the march mm -hmm. and it's making slow process and this is when St. Clair is sending these letters you know concerned about the lateness of the season mm -hmm. and he's getting the replies you know you've got to push on. Mm -hmm. um, oddly even though they're as they're advancing there there are signs of Indians there are reports of Indians stealing horses taking a scalp or two mm -hmm. uh, sighting of, of Indians, you know, arriving at a, a fire that's still warm where Indians have been. Sinclair thinks they don't know he's coming. Um, <laughs> right up until the end, the yeah. night before the battle, he thinks that the next day he's going to get his army on, on the march. He's had to send one regiment back hmm. down, the, down the road to stop deserters plundering the baggage trains. I mean, that's kind of I think significant. Yeah. But the next, he's, he's convinced the evening of November 3rd, the next day he's going to get the regiment back together and he's going to push ahead and he thinks he's on the St. Mary's River. He's going to push ahead another 40 miles or whatever to uh, the Miami villages and his worry, like Custer's worry going to the Little Bighorn, is the thing that he's worried about is that the Indians will scatter mm. before he can get a he chance to kill engage them, them in yeah. battle. Right? Um, that night, huh. the Indian army is two and a half miles away, right? mm. and they have advanced to come and engage. What Native American allies does he have with him? He has none, uh, because That's not a good idea. <laughs> they, they, the Chickasaws and, uh, and this Chickasaw uh, chief Piamungo have actually arrived to provide uh, allies, mm -hmm. and they they kind of go off on a there's a handful of them. I yeah, think scouting like twenty. They go off scouting, and they manage to miss the army, and they miss the battle. They come back back later. Yeah. So in a sense, um, mm -hmm. Sinclair's you know operating blind. Mm -hmm. The Indians, of course, aren't. They're, they're, I mean, here's this racket coming through the forest. Of course, they know he's mm -hmm. coming, and they've been monitoring his movement, and they've raised their, they've raised their own troops, as it were. 
mm. and they've left their villages and they've they've come to meet the army mm. and so when the dawn of November 4th breaks um, Guy Fawkes Day well it's Mischief Night actually oh, that's Guy right. Fawkes Day is the next day Mischief Night the troops you know do their usual thing they do the, the, the muster and then mm. there's this all hell breaks loose mm. and what has happened is that the I mean I, as I say in the book Indians do all the things that Indians are supposed to not be able to do. Mm. A number of charismatic leaders have brought together a coalition. They've held it together. They've brought that force to bear at a certain point, at a certain uh, location. And they've developed a battle plan, mm. which is not only effective, it's, it's lethal. Yeah. It's essentially the 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 crescent moon or the the horns of the cattle or you know the zulus do it against the british where you advance and the, as you advance the wings envelop the the army and yeah. or the enemy and your your enemy is surrounded and they do that so rapidly um that many of the americans who describe it think think that the battle started with the indians surrounding them mm. um and of course, right? That they just kind of came in from everywhere, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, of course, there, as at Braddock's defeat, Indians are firing from the trees, from cover, on guys who are standing in ranks, huddling together for for safety in many cases. Yeah. And of course, it's devastating. Yeah. Uh, and as at Braddock's defeat, the the American troops kind of stand and take it for two or three hours. Yeah. Um, they try um, they try bayonet charges, but of course, what in what the Indians do when the bayonet charge comes is just disappear. Yeah, they're not going to stand, and, <laughs> stand yeah. and take it like good European troops. Yeah. They just disappear in the forest. The uh, bayonet charge loses your momentum, and then what you're going to do? Well, you go back to the square, and it, it yeah. all resumes again. Yeah, and um, there was a the officers were targeted. Trying to officers are targeted. That that's where the, the, the artillery, was. the gunners are targeted, so yeah. the guns are rendered silent. Yeah. Uh, so. A relatively a fairly undisciplined group of soldiers to begin with mm. now are bereft of officers and, yeah. and discipline seems to uh, pretty much have, have unraveled so that by the time Sinclair actually says okay we've got to retreat how does Sinclair survive I mean well, Braddock does not <laughs> Braddock does not Sinclair was Sinclair was sick through a lot of this I mean he was being carried in a litter yeah, and yeah. Um, Washington was carried in the litter and he survived yeah. too so that's the um, way to go into these battles I think um, <laughs> possibly because in, when the when the fighting breaks out apparently he just grabs this coat and this slouch hat so it's not right, because he's not out he's, he's not, not out distinguishable from, as, a, as, a, as an officer mm. um, but the, the retreat just very quickly becomes this awful route in which people are just running for their lives mm. with mm. Indians in in hot pursuit um, Fortunately, it seems like such a strange term to use, but mm. fortunately for, for many of the army, of course, the, the, many of the survivors, the Indians don't maintain that pursuit forever. I mean, mm. it's, it's well, not... Exhausted. Well, mm. it's also a case they're often criticized for this kind of thing, that you, mm. you could have in, inflicted total defeat, you could have inflicted more right. casualties. Yeah. And I think that's a different way of thinking mm. um, that reflects perhaps a European view where you, you, you tally victory by 
corpse is on the field. Mm. I mean, by this, it's clear the Indians have won that victory. Yeah. Right? They've turned mm. back this invading force, um, and they, you know, then turned back for the plunder and the scalps and the, and right. the tokens of, of yeah. that victory. Um, but even so, it, it's devastating. I mean, there's over 600 killed, hundreds of wounded. I mean, this the army essentially disintegrates mm. um, and comes trickling back yeah. down the route that Sinclair had, 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 had hacked his way through mm. in, in the weeks uh, before. And um, Prisoners taken? Yeah, and of course prisoners taken could be a pretty horrific fate, especially for, for the men. Mm. Um, and there's you know evidence and reports of, of horrible torture and the British confirm that, which of course in the context of Native American war, uh, this is part of the ritual of warfare. Um, this is a means of assuaging, appeasing the spirits of the dead and, and taking mm. revenge and it was expected and warriors would expect that to happen mm. if they fell into into mm. into mm. the hands of the enemy. Mm. Uh, women and children would be taken prisoner. Women and children were killed. Um, often the captives who were taken, of course, well, their they could ha their fate could run the whole spectrum. Right. Uh, killed out of out of hand, tortured, taken back uh, to an Indian encampment, mistreated, maybe even tortured, maybe ransom. Or, and this certainly happened to some of the prisoners, uh, be adopted into Indian community mm -hmm. to take the place of people who've been killed, not necessarily people who died in this battle, but people who died from other causes. Um, this was a traditional aspect of Native American mm -hmm. warfare. Um, it helped plug gaps in the social fabric, mm -hmm. but also increasingly, of course, in the 18th century, it becomes a mechanism for um, trying to stem population collapse mm, as mm, war and, yeah. and, and disease take an escalating yeah. toll on Indian population. So, so what's the uh, response? Uh, the, when the news of this defeat starts to filter mm -hmm. into the east, yeah, uh, through its, what do, what do people do? What does yeah. Washington do? What is the, what is the, what is I don't know. What does the world say yeah, about this? Right. Um, <laughs> Well, they said a lot more than they said since because yeah. this, I mean, this. Well, this is yeah. That's the interesting thing. When this news reaches Philadelphia and places, uh, which it seems to have done by stages, there's a famous scene. Mm. It's 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 a little bit like the the Wellington receiving the news that Napoleon's on the march. You know, a, a, a ball is interrupted by a blood smattered spotted messenger who looks concerned right it's a little bit like that one yeah. one of the stories that we have is that washington is interrupted at dinner he's got dinner guests and yeah. he's told this he goes calmly back to dinner and then when dinner's over he comes back and mm. freaks out that aloofness that that calm is not required but it it really does uh, I mean, people are hearing from it from, you You know, it's picked up in newspapers in Kentucky, yeah. etc. Mm -hmm. People are hearing about this. And of course, it's it's um, hugely distressing. I mean, Thomas Jefferson says people are talking about nothing else. Yeah, you know, it's this, a disaster. This yeah. is a disaster. We're, the, the country is left without defense. We have no army, uh, which means not only do we have no defense against the Indians, but there's still the British and the Spaniards, what's going to happen? And immediately newspapers are picking it up and you get, I mean, you, you 
get all of the reports reprinted over and over, the lists of dead as, mm. as, as the news comes out. Uh, the newspapers uh, print correspondence about the battle. They begin to print this correspondence between Washington's and Sinclair. Mm. There's a congressional investigation into this. Yeah, um, I think you point out the first congressional yeah, investigation. Yeah, apparently the first right. congressional investigation, yeah. and apparently two. It, it produces the, the birth of executive pri privilege, something mm -hmm. that those of us who lived through Watergate, which mm -hmm. I guess we assumed it was just always there. Well, it's, <laughs> the Indians did it, right? Because, um, yeah. you know, when, when the Congressional Committee begins to delve deeper, of course, they begin to follow the money. Right. And right. some of this goes, seems to go as high as Alexander Hamilton, Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Knox, Secretary of War. And so Washington then is presented with the request for documentation and he huddles with his cabinets and, mm. and I think, you know, recognizing we're establishing precedent here, what do we do? Mm. And the consensus is that you hand over those documents except those which could be deemed to be detrimental to the public mm. safety or the public interest. interest. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, that's a, that was an unexpected find. That is interesting. That. That is but of course, I don't know if I've seen that connection made before. The it actually was there is a book on executive on, privilege. On, on executive privilege, yeah, <laughs> which does right yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to say it was me, but nobody reads that. that. That's yeah. good. No, that's good. We should say it too. Yeah. But, uh, um, but yeah. very quickly, I mean, what what number of things happen. Mm. Um, I think it fuels party dissension. Uh, there's a lot of criticism of Washington. Mm. Um, I mean, as, as you were, he's commander in chief. Yeah. It's on his watch. Um, but I don't think, and some people, there are people, it's interesting reading newspapers, there are people writing often and under these assumed pen names who are saying, stop the war, mm. who are saying, we did this is what we deserve we haven't treated the indians fairly mm. um we got what was coming for us and if we keep down this path we're going to have more of the same we mm. need to you know which mm -hmm. is when when we work in native american history we so often assume there's a kind of monolithic yeah. white anti-indian yeah. sentiment and i think that certainly there, there is that but mostly it's certainly, that but yeah, it's more but complicated the, you have these pockets of, yeah. of this um, but I think from the government perspective and the national perspective as a whole, of course, this is a, this is an, um, this is a, a battle whose verdict cannot stand. We yeah. have to turn this around. Mm. Of course, they can't turn it around immediately. Mm. They've got to rebuild the army and they've got to think again about how they're going to raise an army, how mm. they're going to organize it, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, enter Anthony Wayne. Right? Does it have long-term impacts on the way the United States looks for suppliers, contractors, and their army, or is that yeah, is that a later story? I think that's. You think it should? I'm not sure. Yeah. I think I don't see the same kind of problems in Anthony Wayne's well, campaign. Well, I guess it has to be in some ways. The Congressional Committee finds. Yeah. What? Is. Who's to blame? They Saint find Clair and the soldiers, basically. Right? Well, actually, they they basically. Um, I suppose you could say they exonerate. Sinclair, I mean, they do b blame. They don't court martial him or anything like that. Right? No, but except he's, he's kind of. Um, he's done. He offers his resignation, <laughs> and, and Washington is all too eager to accept it, I think might be the way to look at it. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think they, I mean, there's always the blame. I mean, of the is truth. Washington reminded of Braddock's defeat? I mean, is that yeah, what he's he thinking about? He, he, he actually makes that explicit connection yeah. a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, 
And I think you know one of the things when he hears about the defeat, he, what happened? Yeah. He, he's supposed to have said, you know, the last thing I did was send him off ringing in the warning ringing in his ears, you know, guard against surprise, which obviously he's thinking of Braddock's defeat and, yeah. and, and what happened there. But, um, but Washington would have been able to imagine the experience yeah, as well as anyone yeah, of what happened that yeah, day. He participated yeah. in a similar rally, yeah. right, and, yeah. and the horrors of that. Yeah. Um, so I, th I mean, I think generally there's a, a just an understanding that not only do we have to right, so get a new army, organize it differently, but this has to be a national endeavor, much more professional, etc. That takes time. I mean, it yeah. takes uh, Anthony Wayne is appointed commander of this new American Legion. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, what the United States does is revert to treaty making, revert to diplomacy, mm -hmm. um, to kind of offer an olive branch saying, well, can't we come to come some kind of meeting of minds? And of course, mm -hmm. Indian people who would, um, or the Indian coalition who had not been inclined mm. to compromise on the yeah. Ohio River as a boundary before. Yeah. Don't really see a need to do it now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. just done no, some we won the battle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've, exactly. we've done some serious, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, so, so let's talk about that. Who, so who, who, is, who is responsible for this victory? Who is the, uh, who's the Indian leader well, that you give the victory to? Yeah, well, the Americans give it, and the contemporaries very quickly afterwards assign it to Little Turtle, mm -hmm. who is the Miami war chief. And I'm not sure why that happens. Mm. John Subden has written a, a biography of the Shawnee chief Blue Jacket. And John, I mean, I guess the gist of John's argument was that this was kind of a PR job by mm. uh, Little, Little Turtle and others. Because <laughs> what happens after this battle is that Because they're both there. They're both there. It's yeah. a coalition of leaders. And Little yeah. Turtle would have authority, such as it was, right. over Miami warriors. Blue Jacket would have influence over mm. Shawnee warriors, Bukongahilas over Delaware warriors. I mean, this is truly a coalition. Yeah. And coalitions are always difficult to pull together. But this yeah. was one that was united by common cause. Um, but of course, like all coalitions, once the objective is won, as it seems to be, yeah. then the thing that held it together is not so present. Yeah, what's the next objective? What do we do next? Right, yeah. and the Americans recognize that. They play mm -hmm. on that. They recognize that Joseph Brandt, for instance, who uh, during the revolution had been this you know, fervent defender of Indian lands and of the British cause and had argued forcibly for Indian unity after the revolution, he's now more inclined to compromise. Mm. Joseph Brandt and his people are living in Canada, so yeah. they're not in the immediate um, firing line, as it were. Mm. Um, so the Americans work on Joseph Brandt, mm. they work on the Senecas, yeah. who they think they can maybe not only, uh, whom they think are not only more uh, likely to compromise, but whom they might employ as emissaries to the Western tribes, yeah. saying, you know, we can make we can make this this work, um, but it's basically the the Miami Shawnees and and um, I suppose the Delawares who kind of and, and Kickapoos who hold the line. Mm. Um, but during this time period, Little Turtle um, does have a shift in attitude um, because he is no longer really in a position of 
authority, let alone command, in, in the subsequent battle of Fallen Timbers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why Americans single him out, because he was the guy, he was the man who inflicted the, mm -hmm. or won the great victory, but then had the vision to uh, see that okay. you know this this could not be it was hopeless yeah, yeah. well this blue jacket of course then goes is yeah. at and the others are who are at fallen uh, battle of fallen timbers where anthony wayne defeats uh, a weakened confederacy in august of 1794 um they just so they went down fighting mm. they all of course make peace with anthony wayne at the treaty of greenville in 1795 yeah, yeah. um and then the question is, what do they do? They've lost most of the Ohio that they fought to defend. Then they have to chart a new way. Um, Little Turtle does that, advocates, you know, for want of a better term, following the white man's road, visits the East, meets, I think, four presidents in his lifetime. Mm. He's something of a celebrity. Mm. Uh, but Blue Jacket's doing the, the same kind of thing. Mm. You know, they realize that the war that that's they fought is over. such a tradition in American history of these these native chiefs recognized as valiant fighters that go east, meet people and are held up in some kind of yeah. exotic uh, position. Yes. You see this with the, the last of the Comanche chiefs yeah. and all. I mean, you yeah. see this. Geronimo. Yeah, yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Or Blackhawk. You go, you go east yeah. in chains. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but that's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's... Um, it's a it's a curious phenomenon, mm. and I and they seem to love it because it gives them power and wealth. Well, and maybe no. yeah, it gives them influence, and of yeah. course now they're having to sort of work with the system, mm. uh, and mm. uh, and some of them do that quite effectively. Yeah. But I think there is that sense, and you know we've had a lot of issues at Dartmouth College with the Indian mascot thing, and so I'm often talking yeah. about this. Well, you're in Washington Redskins land here, so right, right. watch what you, you know, say. So where does that come from? And yeah. um, and I, I think you, having defeated a people, yeah. you can then ascribe to them virtues yeah. that you would like to see in yourself. So it's yeah, that roman yeah, the romantic turn yeah. you see with the Highland tribes. Yeah, exactly. You know, they all of a sudden yeah. you're you're wearing tartan. Now and balls. that they are no longer a threat, yeah. we can recognize their valor, their courage, their independence, their freedom loving yeah. and, and claim some and claim that claim yeah. those traits. It's American, yeah. Um, so the battle, what what should the name of the battle be? That's what I said. You, you had well, to come up with a name. Right. Who names battles anyway? Right. I mean, right. the Civil War, like they're either, whether it's, it's either rivers or towns, yeah. depending on which well, side after, you're on. Well, after the Battle of Agincourt, Henry yeah. V and all that, the, 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 the French and English Herald, apparently, they meet on a ridge. What is the name of this? What is yeah. the name of this field? <laughs> right. I mean, nothing yeah. like that was going to happen in the way of St. Clair. Maybe when Little happened. Turtle showed right. up in the east, somebody should have said, right. what did you call yeah. the victory? Yeah, probably. It should, maybe it's just the Battle of the of the Wabash. Um, yeah. When I was struggling for the title, I suggested to um, mm. Tim Ben, my, my editor at Oxford, and mm. I said, how about Big Bash on the Wabash? <laughs> I didn't get any response, oh, that's so great. we didn't go with it. <laughs> Well, we could keep talking, and I'd love to talk more, and we'll get another chance, hopefully, uh, when you're working on your book on George Washington yeah. and uh, the Native Americans. We've, uh, we've talked long enough, I think, but uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say later, and appreciate the time to share your insights. And it really is a fantastic read, The Victory With No Name, The Native American Defeat of the First American Army, Colin G. Calloway. Thank you very much for being with me. Thank you, Doug. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure to be here, too. 
We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.